from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. He's believing that if we saw the destruction that was going on, mm -hmm. the things you see every day, that this would be a wake-up call for us. So I'm really conflicted on that because I think when you talk about imagery around violence, you have to ask yourself, to what end and who is this helping? The sheer volume of patients that can come in in a short period of time. As a hospital um, uh, system in the United States, we're just not equipped to handle semi-automatic um, rifles. I do not want to put this to the test, but we yes. have a mass casualty plan. We could potentially surge, but then it leads to rationing of other care. I'm Sarah Fenske. It was one week ago today that an 18-year-old gunman killed 19 students and two teachers at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Combined with the horror of a mass shooting at a grocery store in Buffalo just one week before that, the terrible events in Texas have the nation again talking about the deadly toll of mass shootings and the American plague of gun violence. Dr. Kristen Mueller is all too familiar with that plague. She's an emergency medicine physician at Barnes Jewish Hospital, St. Louis Children's Hospital, and Barnes Jewish West County Hospital, as well as an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Washington University School of Medicine. Now, St. Louis hasn't suffered a mass tragedy recently, like the one in Uvalde. But just because bodies come into local emergency rooms one by one or two by two doesn't make the violence any less overwhelming. Gunshot wounds are now the number one way that children in America die. And Dr. Kristen Mueller joins us today to talk about it. Dr. Mueller, welcome. Thank you for having me. So it's sobering to think of gunshot wounds killing so many American kids, so many Americans in general. Can you break this down for us? How, how are people being shot? Yeah, it's certainly a big issue in emergency medicine and public health and medicine in general. We really think about this as a public health epidemic. So just like other diseases like COVID, like the flu, like heart attacks, strokes, firearm injuries and firearm deaths are a disease that can be tracked, treated, and ultimately prevented just like every other disease. And what we see is that the mass shootings are certainly heartbreaking. And I've had the sad week that everyone else in America has been having over our recent um, spate of mass shootings. But that's actually the minority of the way that folks die from guns in America. Mm. Most people who die from guns or from firearms um, happen either by suicide, which is about two-thirds of firearm deaths, or interpersonal violence, so things like homicide. And it's a huge issue. And as you said, the fact that firearm injuries are now the leading cause of death in children just make this issue even come more to the forefront of a big public health epidemic that needs to be addressed with all the public health resources that we've addressed every other epidemic to date. When we're talking about kids dying from gun violence, mm -hmm. um, that suicide number, when you look at the overall uh, homicide or overall, overall deaths from gun violence, two-thirds being suicide, is this the case for kids, too, that we're seeing a lot just grab guns? 
Yeah, so I can't speak to whether or not the rate is quite as high as two-thirds um, for suicides in children. Um, the We talk about it less, but actually the number one demographic of folks who die from guns in America are um, American Indian populations and white men, because um, mm-hmm. it tends to be older adults who are most likely to die from suicide. But certainly we're seeing a huge mental health crisis in our young people, um, some of it as downstream implications from high levels of community violence or being survivors of personal firearm injuries or family members who've been directly affected, um, others dealing you know, with the downfall or the fallout from COVID, from isolation, from just like fewer contact points mm-hmm. with all of the protective services that we used to have, so in schools and community organizations and other places. And in Missouri, our mental health needs are unmet across the board. Certainly, we have a much greater need in terms of number of patients, both adult and in children, who need mental health services who don't have access to them, either as outpatients or um, at times of extreme crisis, even as inpatients. We have long waits for mental health beds in the state. So there's a lot of talk about mental health and how that relates to these mass shootings. Mm-hmm. Um, do we know What do we know about uh, people who deal with mental health struggles and how gun violence affects them? Yeah, I think it's really easy to say this person had a mental health disorder and they went on a shooting rampage and all of this is the fault of mental health. And that is a very inaccurate way to view this. Um, we know for sure that... Patients with mental health diagnoses or underlying mental health conditions are much more likely to become victims of firearm injuries, again, whether self-inflicted with suicide or um, as a result of interpersonal violence with somebody else assaulting them, than they are to ever go on to hurt anybody else, Mm -hmm. which really highlights the need that to help keep our children and adults safe, we really need to be better addressing the mental health crisis in America. Yeah, and you mentioned um, how the pandemic has taken a toll on mental health. Is this something that you've seen in your work here at local emergency rooms? People are struggling. Definitely. And I think people are just sicker in general across the board, as terrible as that sounds. It's been harder and harder to get into primary care doctors. A lot of folks deferred treatment during the pandemic. And now that they are reaccessing care, they're just more behind the eight ball than they would have been a year or two years ago. Um, And mental health is no exception to that rule. Hmm. So people put things off and then things got worse and worse. That might be the case for cancer. That might be the case for a mental health condition. Absolutely. So we've been talking about stats. Tell us a bit about what you've witnessed. I mean, you're there as an emergency room doctor at both Barnes and Children's Hospital. What do you see as it relates to gun violence? Yeah, so it's a lot of injuries. And I'm pretty careful about the terminology. Gun violence is very common. Um, in the media, and sure, no reflection on that. But the term firearm injury is actually much more accurate because it encompasses all types of firearm injuries, um, both the accidental. So, you know, you're cleaning your gun and you accidentally shoot yourself in the hand or the foot, and we see those, um, or suicide. Um, and then gun violence um, kind of more accurately fits interpersonal violence, one person trying to shoot another. But we certainly see high, high um, rates of folks coming into our emergency departments in St. Louis with firearm injuries. Um, as part of the Washington University Gun Violence Initiative, we've developed a data, repo- a data repository to track um, all assaults across our four St. Louis Level 1 trauma hospitals in the city. So that's Barnes, Children's, Cardinal Glennon, and SLU. And what we're finding is that in the last decade, at our four hospitals, we have taken care of over 10,000 patients for acute firearm injuries. 
And that is an underestimate for the true burden of this disease in our region, because some folks will stay at their smaller regional hospitals, and some patients will die before they make it to the hospital. I mean, 10,000, that seems like a huge number. It's staggering. It's just... It's 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 a lot because when we look at it from the research side, ten thousand it's it's a huge number. But then when you think about it from the doctor side or the clinician side, these are ten thousand you know kids, moms, dads, aunts, uncles, real people who have had their lives ripped apart by firearm injury, and that's got huge implications for um, how the community heals, how individuals heal, how families heal. Um, And it's something that we think a lot about when we start to structure interventions. Yeah, I mean, so you're there, you're treating the patient. I'm wondering what you're hearing from family members as they're there watching this, their entire life changing because of this thing that has has sent a loved one into your emergency room. Yeah, it's it's a lot for sure. Um, I will say if you make it to the hospital, which, again, not everybody does after a gunshot wound, um, that... We have done an excellent job at becoming really good at saving lives. And across our four hospitals, the survival rate is close to 95%. Wow. So if you get to the hospital, you're probably going to survive because we've gotten very good at treating this, for better or worse. But that doesn't make it any easier on the families because the families rush in and all they know is incomplete information. Sometimes they were at the scene, especially parents of, you know, our kids and teenagers. Um, They might not know anything about what had happened and just said, I was told to come to the hospital. Um, so every conversation always starts with, what do you know about what happened? And we kind of work from there. But it can be really devastating because even when the answer is your child is alive, we believe they're going to survive and make a full recovery. That means a lot of different things to different people. And even when we can heal the physical wounds, there is, again, still the downstream mental health care that needs to be provided in terms of dealing with PTSD and also giving families and patients resources to heal their whole selves. So again, not just the bullet wounds, but taking care of kind of all aspects of why they might have become injured in the first place and making sure they've got all the resources they need to, you know, do the wound care and the mental health care. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that these hospitals are getting good at dealing with this kind of violence. I mean, there's so much of it. I guess you you Mm -hmm. have to. Um, Do you feel like hospitals at this point are also equipped for then what follows this long journey to deal with things like the the mental health issues that that maybe got people into a situation with an injury in the first place? Yeah, it's um, we're getting there for sure. We get better at it every year. And I know we've been talking a lot about mental health care, but certainly the impact of systemic institutionalized racism plays a big role in firearm injuries in America and in St. Louis locally. And a lot of our prevention programs like the um, St. Louis Region-Wide Hospital Violence Intervention Program, Life Outside Violence, really try and tackle all of the different Um, ways that folks can become injured and also need healing down the road, again, both for patients and their families. Um, And that um, involves getting connected with mentors who are clinically licensed social workers who've got a lot of specialized training in trauma counseling. They're actually some of the most exceptional individuals I've ever worked with, Mm -hmm. these folks, um, in terms of the care that they're able to provide and the expertise that they have. And that what we're really doing is treating violence and injury with counseling, with case-based services and social services. So trying to get to some of the root causes of these injuries. Boy, that's good to know that there is, you know, this is something that hospitals are being mindful of. But still, I'm sure this is just almost overwhelming how much you're seeing and, and just how frequently you're dealing with it. Yeah, it is. And I think what we risk, too, is because it's um, almost what we call a bread and butter case. 
as terrible as that sounds. So there's things in emergency medicine that we see every day. They're colds, they're heart attacks, they're strokes, you know, pneumonia, sepsis, all of the regular reasons people come to the emergency department. And for better or worse, firearm injuries have become one of our regular reasons people seek medical care in this mm-hmm. city. So I think it puts the onus on us as hospitals and healthcare systems to be key players in how we start to address the prevention because patients are coming to us when they might not seek services other places. And it really gives us kind of this pivotal moment to be able to intervene and, and help improve safety and healing in patients' lives. So I want to talk about some of those programs here in a moment. But first, I want to go to the phone lines. Uh, Dr. Jason Ray, I hope I'm saying that right, is calling from St. Louis. Uh, Dr. Ray, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Hi, um, thank you for having me on. Um, and uh, I do think that this is a very important conversation um, that you're having. Um, the most recent um, statement was uh, so true. Um, I, I work over at St. Louis, um, Mercy St. Louis, and we're doing a lot to try to increase the um, preparedness that we have. But uh, one of the things that I wanted to address is uh, something that I wrote about in the Huffington Post a few years ago is that as a hospital um, uh, system in the United States, we're just not equipped to handle semi-automatic um, rifles. The sheer volume of patients that can come in in a short period of time is just something that we're not equipped for. And definitely as a result of COVID and as a result of um, staff shortages, this is something that has been exacerbated. And, you know, um, political... Um, misgivings one way or another is that aside um, just the sheer ability to take care of patients um, in a quick fashion um, you know handguns is one thing but semi-automatic rifles with the sheer volume of patients um, that can enter the door this is something that uh, myself and my partners have anxiety about all the time is that you know we have difficulty getting regular patients into the operating room because of staff shortages and if something like what happened in Uvalde or so many other locations happened in St. Louis, um, it would be um, extremely devastating. I think we're fortunate that we have so many level one trauma centers in St. Louis, um, mm-hmm. but the rest of the United States is not um, blessed with uh, the resources that we have. And even with a plethora of resources, we're still um, in my opinion, under-equipped to handle semi-automatic rifles. Dr. Ree, thank you for um, for sharing that observation, and, and that's terrifying. I mean, we're just talking about the day-to-day toll here. Dr. Mueller, the idea of something that would be more of a catastrophic event with, with multiple casualties, that sounds like it would put a real strain on, on an already overtaxed system. Yeah, it definitely would. So I have the privilege of working at the Level 1 Trauma Hospitals, which are better equipped to deal with this. But one of the other things we have to think about is even if – We could, you know, at Barnes, for example, take 20 adults or teenagers who had been shot all in a row, which I think with our mass casualty, I do not want to put this to the test, but we have a mass casualty plan. We could potentially surge, but then it leads to rationing of other care because we're not just a level one trauma center. We're also a stroke center. We're also, you know, a... I'm forgetting the terminology. I apologize. But a top top, um, hospital for heart attacks and all of these other time critical emergencies. And if all of our teams are getting retasked to deal with victims of firearm injuries and save their lives, that means delays in care for all the other emergencies that still need time sensitive care. And I think that really highlights that firearm injuries don't only impact the victims and their family, but they really have community level, regional level 
state and national level impact because of the resource shifting that's required to deal with this. And you're absolutely right in that it's terrifying to consider what some of these high-powered weapons can really do. We're talking today to Dr. Kristen Mueller. She's an emergency medicine physician at Barnes Jewish Hospital, St. Louis Children's Hospital, and Barnes Jewish West County Hospital, also an assistant professor at Washington University School of Medicine. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. I want to go to Nick, who's calling from Wentzville. Um, Nick, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, how are y'all? I have a, a, I have a quick question, right? So like, like normal public health stuff, right? Define, define and monitor a problem, identify risks and mitigation, develop a test, blah, 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 ensure widespread adoption, et cetera, et cetera. Who's going to, has that already been done in terms of creating this infrastructure? Usually the CDC, NIH, and other kind of BARDIS, DARPA, whoever, right, is, go- is going to be providing grant money for this. Has that been done already? And is there uh, a kind of infrastructure to get this data? And it's interesting, I, I heard your comment, I looked at some of the data, I think it is underrepresented. When I was a. And Nick, I'm going to cut in there. I think, yeah, I think Dr. Mueller would be the first to tell you this data is undercounting. But that, that question about the funding. Yeah, absolutely. So they two go hand in hand. So the CDC data primarily tracks firearm mortality. So when people actually die from their firearm injuries. And we do not yet have a national database that is comprehensive for firearm injuries across all 50 states. And Missouri is one of the states that does not contribute national data. I think Mm. about 23, maybe 33 states now do. So at a national level, we still don't know the scope of the problem. And regionally, we don't either. We're trying to do a better job of getting that data through our partnership between the level one trauma hospitals and some of our health systems. But there's definitely room for improvement, and I would love to see a state-level database of all firearm injuries, because until we know the scope of the problem, we can't as accurately measure how effective our treatments are and our interventions. And I absolutely think that there is room for improved public health funding at every sector. So we've got a lot of workarounds right now. The Missouri Foundation for Health has been a huge player in this space. Um, There is some federal funding from the CDC. but it sounds like there could be more. But there could be more, for sure. I realize Build Back Better has taken some turns, but there was a $5 billion, with a B, dollar provision for community violence interruption and intervention programs. That sounds like that would have been huge. It would be a game changer. And there has been a push to try and make that standalone legislation. And I would love to see our local elected representatives take the lead on this because this is a public health issue and a life threat that affects so many of our of their constituents here in Missouri. 
Yeah. So, Dr. Mueller, you're dealing with this, and, and you and your colleagues are advocating for, you know, we could use so much more attention to this, so much more funding to this. But I know there's also things that you guys are already doing, programs that you feel like are doing good work in this space. Uh, what's something you'd point to as this is something that this is a good solution? Yeah, absolutely. It can feel like the problem of firearm injuries is such a big problem. And how do we fix this? How do we stop everyone from getting hurt? And in the short term, there's a lot of things that we as individuals can do to improve the health and safety of ourselves, our families, and our network. So the very first thing is safe storage of your guns at home. So guns should be stored locked and unloaded in the with the bullets in a different physical location. So that's locking your gun with a gun lock in a gun safe. And again, having the bullets in a different physical location, because we know so ho- so often, especially in times of mental health crisis, from you know vague consideration that I've been depressed, I might want to commit suicide to that very strong impulsivity of I want to go, want to go, want to go mm-hmm. to pulling the trigger is usually less than 15 minutes and often less than five minutes. And if when you decide it's time that you're ready to try and kill yourself and you open the gun locker and it's empty or the gun is locked and you can't find the key, most people will go on to have remorse and seek help, mm-hmm. which is why in our emergency departments, when folks attempt suicide or try to commit suicide, we most often see the pill overdoses. Because if you overdose on pills, you have time to call for help. You have time to come to the hospital. But almost never do we see survivors of firearm suicide attempts make it to the hospital because it's just so much more lethal. Mm -hmm. Um, Safe storage of your firearms also decreases the likelihood of having your kids be involved in an accidental shooting. So we know kids like to play cops and robbers, tons of other games. They find the guns and they always know where they are. Always. Always. (laughs) Yeah. And children as young as three years old are strong enough to pull the trigger on a gun. So having that gun stored safely, again, with a lock on it and the bullets in a different physical location can mean the difference between one of your kids shooting another one of your kids. That is the most tragic scenario. It happens, and it is 100% preventable with Mm -hmm. very simple solutions. Um, Kind of one last point on that. If you're having a mental – if anybody in your family is having a mental health crisis, we actually recommend storing the guns outside the home. So that could be with family or friends. Um, You could surrender them to the local police station. Or sometimes if you have a relationship with a gun range, they may take them on as storage. But again, just getting physical separation between folks who are struggling and the firearms is – a very important way to to improve health and safety. And I know there have been some programs in the past where they're saying, hey, you can get a a free gun lock, just come down this weekend. Where would you point people towards if they missed out on those, but they want to lock their guns? Absolutely. So I would go online and look up Lock It for Love. That's a local St. Louis organization that gives out a lot of gun locks. Um, They have partnered with us at um, Barnes and Children's Hospital, and we give out free gun locks in both of our emergency departments. Um, We... Also have partnerships kind of with a lot of different community organizations. The United Way and the Violence Prevention Commission have big big leaders in this. Um, the Missouri Health Board. So many places that you can reach out for help. And if you're not sure where to go, the first call can always be the phone number 211. So kind of like 911. 211 is a new hotline set up through and managed through United Way, which helps deal with basic needs, child care, disaster relief, counseling, kind of all sorts of wraparound social services that can also improve safety from injury. It can head off some of these gun problems if, if you're worried about that. Well, that's great to know. 211, that's an easy number to remember. I want to go back to the phone lines. Mitch is calling from Chesterfield, and Mitch has a question I understand several people have called in with today. Let's see if we can get an answer from Dr. Mueller. Mitch, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Mitch, are you with us? 
Uh, I think we're having some problems with Mitch's connection, um, which is unfortunate. So he's curious about the damage from rifles and these high-velocity round injuries. If that makes a big difference from what you see from handguns, is that something that you've encountered um, in your work in St. Louis? So not often, which is good. Um, I think when you receive an injury from something that can reasonably be considered a weapon of war that was designed to kill Mm -hmm. um, versus, you know, hunting rifles, which I suppose are still designed to kill, but different. Sure. Um, Just the, I've been reading the same news everybody's been reading coming out of Texas, coming out of some of these other, out of Buffalo and other places. And just the description of the degree of injury from how high force it is, the fact that, these children basically have been shredded as terrible as that is i mean there's a there's only so much we can do Mm -hmm. um when we watch tv we see you know on tv somebody gets shot they pull the bullet out and they're saved but in real life removing the bullet is never the solution okay this is good to know tv has it wrong (laughs) tv does have it wrong in this way um because the firearm injury isn't just the bullet it's not just the bullet track but it's all of the percussive force that comes off of it are all that high velocity, which puts all this energy into other parts of the body and really disperses the just the body surface area or the amount of the body that is actually injured. It's not just the bullet track. I, I find myself wondering if part of why you haven't seen much of this in St. Louis, and I'm sure it's also mm-hmm. that we have a lot more handguns, but these would be cases where people aren't coming in alive to the ER. I think you're right about that. I mean, part of the one of the worst stories I read about Evalde was where the, you know, the pediatricians were preparing mm-hmm. for people to come to the ER and hardly anyone made it. I mean, that's people are lying in the streets, lying in their classrooms. Um, you know, there was a story on NPR this morning. A trauma surgeon in Philadelphia has said the American people need to see the damage that bullet wounds cause to the body. He's believing that if we saw the destruction that was going on, mm-hmm. the things you see every day, that this would be a wake-up call for us. Do you think there's there's any truth to that theory? So I'm really conflicted on that because I think when you talk about imagery around violence and severe injury and illness, you have to ask yourself to what end and who is this helping? And I worry that if we start putting out this these images, which have been very accurately described yeah. <laughs> for what it's worth in the recent um, mass media, that it will be more traumatizing to survivors of violence and their families um, who may or who, you know, may still have their family with them or not mm-hmm. um, after being victims of gunshot wounds. Um, I know as a healthcare provider, seeing those images would be very traumatic to me. Um, yeah. We call it second, vind- second victim syndrome, which is everything we carry home from being in this work. And it's tough. I'd like to believe that the American people wouldn't have to see it with their own eyes to believe it's real. Yeah. I'm going to tell you it's real. <laughs> <laughs> you are here as our witness. Yes. And yet after each one of these, you know, everybody seems to just choose their position mm-hmm. and people who want to arm school guards and people who want to crack down on guns. And then we all start shouting at each other and nothing seems to come out of this, which is why you can see how some people have, have called for more dramatic solutions. What do you think in this debate that America is having once again, what are we missing? What should we be mindful of? So again, I'm going to keep taking it back to our public health roots because that is where our medicine is most centered. But we have to think about what do we most value and what are we willing to do to help keep our children alive, to help keep our teenagers alive, to keep our young adults alive, to keep our families alive. And I 
I spent a lot of the weekend actually talking with some of my friends about what is our breaking point? When will things change? Because you always say, hear people saying, like, we got to do something. We need to make changes. And I think we're doing that at the hospital and the medical center level. Certainly a lot of community programs in the area are doing great work, again, through the United Way. Um, I didn't even get a chance to mention Dr. Punch, who's got the T and the bullet-related injury clinic up on Delmar. So many folks are in this space making incremental change, which really has the potential to move the needle in the long term on this issue. And I think has the potential to even, (laughs) I say in the long term, but in the short term as well. I mean, these are actionable solutions that we can work on today um, while we wait for the legislative bodies to catch up with the research. Yeah, I mean, I sure hope at some point they will catch up with that research. But in the meantime, I think so many Americans are feeling hopeless right now. And it sounds like you don't feel hopeless, maybe frustrated. Yes. Maybe angry. Frustrated, angry, tired, real tired. (laughs) But not hopeless. But not hopeless because every single firearm injury is preventable. And I think when I get angry, that's why. Because none of these injuries need to happen. And we just need to come together as a society and decide that we're ready to move the needle on this. And again, safe storage of firearms, getting connected with injury prevention programs, um, and violence interruption programs, getting connected with better you know, social services and giving people you know, the resources to have other choices really makes a huge difference in the space. So you're hopeful. I mean, the, the, there are some solutions there here. Are solutions. We just need to double down maybe on all sorts of solutions. Yeah. And it, again, it's a solvable problem. And I think there's room for individual responsibility and then there's room for collective responsibility as a society. Well, Dr. Kristen Mueller, I want to thank you for joining us today and just sharing from your experience here. Thank you for having me. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering by Aaron Doerr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.